0: This episode of The First Mile is supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. If you love The First Mile, you'll love Further Faster. It features interviews with some of the world's greatest ultra-athletes, climbers and adventurers about exploring the world's most extreme environments. We regularly listen to Further Faster for inspiration, and I would particularly recommend the episode with Jenny Tuff, where she talks about why she spends three weeks running through the mountains with just a backpack for company. Just search for Further Faster on the same podcast app that you found The First Mile.
1: Welcome to The First Mile with Ash Bardwaj and Pip Stewart, in which we learn how travel, adventure and storytelling can change you and the way you look at the world.
0: In this episode, I interview my co-host, journalist Pip Stewart, we talk about how she accidentally fell into a career in travel journalism, how one massive adventure changed her life, and why she sees social media as the route to editorial independence. Quick bit of background. Pitt studied history and politics at Oxford, then did a master's in journalism in Hong Kong. She was the adventure editor at Redbull.com, and since leaving there, has become an adventurer in her own right. She is in the process of writing a book about an expedition along the Esquibo River in Guyana. And you can find her on Instagram at, at PipStuart, where she shares her poetry alongside her tales of adventure and philosophical insights. And if you enjoy this episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find the first mile. Subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. It doesn't have to be long. But for now, please enjoy this conversation with Pip Stewart. Well, you and I know each other through our mutual agent, Joe Cantello, and we've known each other for a few years. But is there a specific travel experience that has helped you refine and define your philosophy of travel? And what is your philosophy of travel?
1: Absolutely, Ash. I think the big thing for me was I studied um, a master's in journalism in Hong Kong. And so we were in Asia for five years. And then my partner, Charlie, said, well, why don't we cycle home? And for me, this was the first time where I suddenly got that innate sense of inner confidence because I initially was like, Charlie, you are bonkers. I've never cycled more than around university. This is not going to happen. But gradually we kind of, we were doing it. And I remember the first three weeks we hadn't trained or anything for this expedition. We'd essentially bought our bikes, turned up um, on the side of the road in Malaysia and set off with a fully loaded bike and you know, three weeks in had this massive meltdown because we, we, we found what was like a mogul. It wasn't even a hill. I couldn't even get up this blooming thing because I was so unfit. And I threw my bike on the floor and I said to Charlie, right, that's it. You picked the wrong girl. I can't do this. Um, threatened to break up with him, basically. Um, and three hours he chatted to me on the side of the road and he said something to me that I've never forgotten, which is these aren't physical journeys. They're mental ones. And as soon as I had that in my head, I'm like, you know what, I can sit at a desk from nine to five. So I can blooming well sit on this bike from nine to five. And gradually over the course of a year, and I wasn't fast, you know, I'm I'm definitely a slow traveler, but I did it. And the next hill we came to, I was a little bit fitter. My legs were more acclimatized to the bike and I realized that I could do it. And that trip was so formative, not only for that learning, but also in understanding how you tell stories. Because we ended up in some very unusual places where, you know, most travellers don't normally go to because it's some, you know, small town in a not a particularly exciting industrial region. But the people were so friendly and you just get a real different sense of the world travelling by bicycle. And I remember we met this one guy who said to me, you know, everyone can teach you something. And that's now become my little mantra in life. And probably my philosophy on travel is that everyone can teach you something. um, And journeys don't have to be massive. It can just be, you know, walking around your local community, go and have a chat with people because they do know something that you don't. And when you approach the world with that view, um, I think you're always going to learn something and feel a little bit better for it.
0: You talked there about how you couldn't do the first mogul but gradually you built up to being able to do these hills do you feel that you have changed from one belief about what you can do to taking that more incremental approach of breaking things down
1: yes yeah, So something i talk about a lot is growth well growth mindset basically you either have a fixed or a growth mindset if it's fixed it's like i can't do this it's too hard not going to happen if you've got a growth mindset you're probably more of the kind of person who's like i'll give it a go and and see what happens and I think I've been quite lucky in that I've always been unafraid to try things. And that's always one of my pieces of advice, actually, is if you're setting out on any project... Don't worry about failing. Like, chances are if you're new at something, you're gonna be shit. So just get used to that, get a sense of humour, and just learn. Because so many of my trips, you know, I did um, a trip with Reza Pakravan, who will be on one of our episodes as well. And he was a, you know, a world record-holding cyclist. And I'm a friggin' slow traveller. Um, but I was like, you know what? What's the worst that's gonna happen? We just slow down a little bit and I'll be a bit embarrassed. And that was, you know, I was embarrassed, I was slow, but we got there and actually The more you do these things, the more you push yourself out of your comfort zone. And actually, failure is a big part of this. Um, Failure and humility, because that is part of the journey and you will get things wrong and you will muck up along the way. But as long as you can go, well, at least I'm moving towards my destination or my goal, um, I'm getting getting somewhere.
0: Is that something you always had? Or do you think that initial experience with Charlie on that first cycling trip and him effectively coaching you through that moment where you nearly rejected the whole thing, was that... Quite a significant moment was that a turning point, or did you always have that growth mindset? Do you think it developed at that time? Do you
1: know what? I think I've always been willing to try things, but there's the sense I think everyone's got it—that like inner critic that goes, "You're not good enough. Why? Why? Why would you even do that? You can't do that. You're rubbish." Like that little voice I think is inside all of us, and something I found really useful in life is surround yourself with people who will drown out your inner critic or help you when it's like particularly strong and you know that side of the road incident with Charlie my inner critic my legs were burning I was embarrassed essentially Ash I told my friends and family that I was going to cycle halfway around the world and here I was like red face sweating so badly like in utter agony thinking I'm only three weeks in and we've just done flat like this is I can't do this and then having that quiet word with yourself which is like well, why not? Why can't I do this? You know, I'm not going to be fast. I'm not going to break a speed record. And I think when you've got friends or people in your life who are willing to champion you and who are there when you can just, you're feeling a bit down and call up and say, mate, I'm having a really bad day. Uh, I feel useless. And they're like, well, remember that time when you did this or, you know, you, you've got this basically is really important.
0: Was that something that you had when you began the steps into your career? Because Journalism was your first choice after university. How did you get into journalism? When you were doing history, when you were finishing off at Oxford, did you go, right, I want to be a journalist? Is that something you always knew?
1: No, I actually had a bit of a failure, Ash. And and I think many of the best things in life start with a failure. So... Straight after university, I didn't know what else to do. So there's a book we had at uni, which was like top 100 graduate employers. So I read through that and I thought, oh, you know what? Innocent drinks sounds like quite a quirky company. I'll I'll apply to them. I got on their grad scheme, which was brilliant. Um, But then I started doing the job, which was sales. And I was rubbish. Uh, Essentially, I was trying to sell drinks into schools. And the feedback I was getting was, well, they're too expensive. I'm like, well, yes, I know, which is not what you do when you're a salesperson. You you, you push a little bit harder. Um, and I, I genuinely was useless. So essentially, I left before I was sacked. And I thought, God, the only thing I know that I love doing is traveling. So how do I travel and make it look legitimate? Which is why I ended up applying for a master's in journalism. Not because I particularly thought, right, journalism is a career for me, but because I thought, I need to do something, um, traveling in Hong Kong, make it look legitimate to my parents by saying it's it's like a work related thing. So it was completely accidental. But I knew that I liked talking to people. And I thought journalism might kind of give me that option to, to at least figure out what I might want to do.
0: So you knew you wanted to travel. And w- why did Hong Kong come up as a place to go?
1: Um, well, a really random conversation with my, um, my uncle's uh, girlfriend, because they live in Hong Kong. And she said, well, have you ever thought about going to university in Hong Kong? Because it's got one of the best universities in the world. It's the best in Asia.
0: And was study something you knew you wanted to do with this time?
1: No, it was just being purely lost. Like people often ask me, have you planned a career? And I really wish I had, but I haven't. Um, I I was very lost. I didn't know what else to do. And I thought, well, at least if I'm doing something in education, I'm a bit of a geek, I do love to research and love to study. And I thought, well, I'm not going to lose anything by doing a master's I'll get to travel a bit and potentially I'll find a career that I like Um, and then when I went to Hong Kong it was the most incredible university there were 36 different nationalities studying journalism on my course the conversations we had were amazing and I suddenly went my god I actually really enjoy the practical side of going out and interviewing people and getting out into the field and reporting and I just I it just clicked and I'm so glad that I gave it a whirl.
0: What does a degree in journalism look like?
1: So I, th- I think a degree in journalism, um, you don't necessarily need to do it. You can just get on the ground experience by um, going to your local newspaper or tele station and saying, can I intern with you? But what I found really useful is it taught me a lot of the practical skills. So I'm not the most techie person, but it showed us how to video edit, how to shoot. And then there was the quality of thinking like how do you approach an interview, what sort of questions are you asking, what does a good interview look like. Um, So there was all, all that kind of theoretical as well as practical things as well and then media law especially in this day and age you know you can't just pull pictures off the internet and then put it in your your article you've actually got to copyright and so a lot of the the actual kind of practicalities were things that we learned there so it was very much unlike my first degree which was history and politics which is very theoretical This is properly practical stuff that I could take my notes from my course and get out in the field and be like, oh, yes. okay. so this is how you turn on the camera. This is how you do a wide shot. This is how you do a close up. And all of that was really useful like going forward.
0: What do you think was the added advantage, having already done university in England, of going to do the master's in Hong Kong?
1: Oh, it was my classmates and the the things that you can learn just from the people around you. So, you know, when we're discussing media law, for example, you know, I'm coming at it from a very much a British perspective. And yet I'm talking to my colleagues in who are based in Myanmar or China. And suddenly the concept of media law is exceptionally different. And it challenged a lot of my own biases, a lot of my own prejudices that I didn't even know I had. Um, and I think it just made me more aware of global issues as well.
0: So you finished this master's in journalism in hong kong and you chose to stay there what drove that and who were you aiming to become at that point and has it changed are you on the path you planned on being
1: um again i, I really i need to do more planning in life ash i think because i've always sort of done elizabeth gilbert who wrote eat pray love has an amazing talk about If you don't know what you want to do in life, just follow your interests. Um, And I think that's really good advice because when I left university, I'd done lots of internships while I was studying to kind of get a sense of, well, do I like telly? Do I like radio? Do I like um, newspaper work? And I ended up getting a job um, at a local TV station called TVB. And it was a very sort of local Hong Kong news channel. Um, They've got a very small section, which is in English. And I ended up reporting on there for a couple of years And I loved it. I mean, they took such a punt on me Uh, as a new reporter. They put me in a live news situation, uh, reporting on Hong Kong politics and things like that. And you think, thank you for taking the chance, because when I was in the UK, I'd applied. This is before I applied to Hong Kong journalism school. I would literally applied for internships at the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, and I had no contacts. I was just finding door after door being slammed in my face. And that was sort of a big motivator for me to go out to Asia because I thought, you know what, sod this. If I can't get, if I can't get any experience in the UK, maybe if I move to Asia, people will give me a chance. And I found that I I was I was right in that assumption. And I was unafraid to kind of go to places and also a little bit of fake it till you make it, Ash. So I remember. My first assignment after I left Hong Kong, uh, when I moved to Malaysia, I was in Mongolia going to a festival basically called the NADAM, which is the Mongolian Manly Games. And I thought, well...
0: Sorry, Manly Games as in...
1: Yes, Manly Games. So right. essentially horse riding, archery, um, wrestling. And I I basically pitched to BBC Travel that I can get you multimedia, um, all of these amazing images. I had no idea how I was actually going to do it, but they got back and said yes. And it's often the way, isn't it? If you commit to something, you'll find a way to make it work. And I did get the images and I did get the piece in. And then I could say, I've done a piece for BBC Travel. And that was sort of the snowball effect because once I'd done that, I tried the same thing for CNN. And then I tried it for The Telegraph or the South China Morning Post. And suddenly you start writing for a load of different people and you can say you've done a couple of pieces for people and it builds up your credibility. So it's a snowball effect in a sense.
0: Can you tell me what it is that you think got you that place on the course and then what specifically did you do that made them take a punt on you in that first job
1: god do you know what I, I think the commonality between getting into the course in hong kong and getting my first job at a tv station with relatively little experience is just a sense of i want to say passion but it's such an overused word but it, it's showing commitment and showing genuine commitment you know, moving to Hong Kong from London is, is a massive thing. Um, and I was prepared to do it because I I wanted to try my hand at journalism, uh, really interested in foreign correspondence stuff and actually saying, you know, I will travel halfway around the world to, to do this is, is a sign of commitment. Likewise, um, my first job at TVB, I was just chomping at the bit at. I, I really wanted to get out. And when they were like, the, the hours are long and the pay is low, I'm like, well, I want to do this I will find a way to make this work and we lived in this tiny apartment Um, Charlie had just got a job teaching English when we first moved out there as a way of trying to pay bills as well and we were like you know what somehow we will make this work and I think sometimes that commitment and drive and also having things that you can show that you've done before so if you, you are applying for these things go and get some experience whichever which way that is that you can kind of supplement your application with as well.
0: I think it's very easy when you're looking at a first job or a first opportunity to focus on the hours and the wages, which are probably not going to be particularly good. So it sounds like the insight you had is recognising that I'm not always going to work these hours or I'm not always going to work this money. But I know that if I don't try this and be committed to this, you probably didn't think about it in quite such logical terms. I've got to do this to get to anywhere else. So just being willing to do whatever it takes at that first stage?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I I think you sort of touched on it there, Ash, but there is a really big problem in the media around privilege and access. And I think things are changing now in the sense of social media has made things so much more democratic because something that I spent a lot of time doing because I had no contacts in the UK when I tried to break into journalism initially, I would then end up stalking editors on Twitter and trying to like have conversations and figure out, you know, what are the things that they're interested in? What are they writing about? And how do I target and pitch my report to that kind of thing that they're interested in? So I think social media has democratised it. I think we need to go further in the media because there is so much privileged and entrenched Bias, and we do need to try and work around that. But again, you know, if you're thinking, God, there's no way I can move to London to get an internship or even Hong Kong or whatever it is, even in your local community, there are stories that are being untold. Like, how do you tell them in the most compelling way? And these days, um, with a very basic smartphone, you can tell stories and you can tell them really engagingly. Social media has massively democratized this. So I think, in one sense, we are confronting a system that is full of privilege but equally I think there's a lot of opportunity for people who have a sort of a growth mindset and are willing to think think outside the box a little bit.
0: Well I think and I would definitely agree on the point that if you just start making content what an awfully wanky term as well but if you start making videos or even Instagram posts that are telling stories from your local community you will develop many of the skills that you require in journalism further down the line I mean, I think a journalism degree is really worthwhile, particularly for the points you make about media law. But it shouldn't be seen as a barrier to entry and that you can't become a journalist if you haven't done a master's, I would say.
1: Absolutely. And I was lucky in that I I had a fully funded scholarship. So had that not been the case... How did
0: you get a fully funded scholarship?
1: um, I think they were really keen to get people from the UK out there. Um, I think the fact that I have... I have a degree from Oxford. Really helped. I think they quite like that. But again, it, it, I, I recognise that a lot of where I've got to has been because of privilege, essentially. Obviously, hard work on my part. But my parents, you know, my dad was in the forces, my mum was a housewife, and they both really pushed me in terms of the importance of education. And it's not, you know, I didn't. I don't come from a hugely wealthy family, but education and and time invested in me by my parents is an enormous privilege. And I remember, you know every single piece of homework if I wanted help with it one of them would be there to help me so I think there's a lot there's a lot of privilege that isn't necessarily that obvious um, which then helped me get a degree from Oxford which then helped me with my next steps but I think the key thing that underlines all of that is find people who are willing to support you and push you because that is ultimately the sort of the best start I think.
0: And do you now find other places to find that support as well as obviously your family what other groups networks and societies do you find really helpful for you to help push and develop you and expose you to new ideas and thoughts Mm
1: -hmm. social media has been incredible actually reza pakravan uh, the guy i did the documentary with is a very good friend of mine now but we met through a, a website called explorers connect Um, And he basically put up a post saying, I'm looking for people with TV experience who have also cycled for this documentary that I'm doing. And I'm like, ah, result. So we met through an online platform. Um, Ness and Laura, I didn't know them before I did the Essequibo River trip. But uh, again, we sort of knew each other from social media. So I guess a lot of what I do in Life Ash is research. So if you're sat there thinking, I've got this goal or I've got this desire to do something, I'd say, well, Are there people doing it already? research them how did they get there can you meet up with them can you just reach out and say can I go for a coffee and that's been an invaluable thing for me is actually that face-to-face contact
0: initiated on social media but then carried through in real life
1: yeah because as soon as people meet you in real life or have a conversation with you it's so much more impactful and even just picking up the phone as an editor when I was doing working at Red Bull I get so many pictures and literally everyone sends email after email after email if someone like actually notices a number on my signature and rings me up and say, "Hey Pip, um, I'm I've sent you a pitch about a week ago. Did you get it?" I can count on one hand the number of times that's happened, but it's it's impactful because it suddenly makes you think, "Oh God, there's a there's a human on the end of this email. I should probably respond." But when you're an editor, you get a lot of pitches coming in, and you know you can't reply to everything. So actually, that human contact and connection is invaluable, and that translates both. Online and not on, on offline.
0: And a quick phone call can resolve twenty back and forth to an email. I would agree. So you cycled back from Malaysia? Is that you started all the way back? From, from Malaysia to London. From Malaysia to London. Uh, did you document your stories on the road and how did you share them whilst you were travelling?
1: Yeah, so I pitched them to like the South China Morning Post and um, I wrote a few stories afterwards and I made sure I got loads of photos. But again, I wasn't, I wasn't doing this journey for work. I was doing this journey for me. And then anything extra that I could sell off the back of it was a bonus. But essentially, I, I got back to London Having spent 13 months with Charlie and our parents picked us up and in our 30s, we both got taken back to our respective family homes and um, we didn't see each other for a few weeks. And it was the weirdest thing. And it was quite an anxiety inducing period, to be honest, Ash, because we'd done this incredible thing. We'd changed so much as people in so many ways. And then the reality of life hits again and you think...
0: And nobody else cares either.
1: No one gives a crap. They really don't. Because it's like, well, that's great. But while you've been swanning around, you know, we've got on with our lives as well. And and suddenly you're faced with the reality of like, okay, if I'm not going to live with my parents forever, which as lovely as they are, we, you know, wasn't going to happen. We need to be able to pay rent. We need to be able to pay bills. Like the kind of, you know, life admin kicks in. So I thought, you know, I'll try carrying on freelancing. But freelancing... Earning what I was earning in Asia goes a lot further than it does in London, if that's where we wanted to be, which it was. So I went on job websites basically, found this job advertised with Red Bull, and I spent a long time on the application. And I thought the fact that I'd done this cycling trip did make me stand out. They were looking for an action sports editor. um, And I was like, okay, well, I'll try and mold this to my CV to be action sports oriented. But I actually got there and they said, well, You're not quite right for this, but we wouldn't mind finding an adventure editor. Is this something that you'd be up for? And I think what might have happened in that interview is that I had such a passion for what I'd done. And again, I hate that word. I'm sorry to use it. But I I genuinely loved that trip and gained so much from it. I think it really shone through, which is why I think if people are kind of in a life crossroads and they're figuring out, I'm not quite sure what to do. I've got this big dream. I'd say, follow it, get a plan, get a financial plan so you're not going to bankrupt yourself. But, you know, always do it because it, it will work out in the end if that's where you, you kind of feel like you need to be.
0: Once you got to Red Bull... How did you develop from what you'd been doing previously in Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, so that was a really interesting transition for me. So I'd gone from being the journalist who had pitched to an editor to being the one on the end of the pitch, um, which it, it took me a while to get my head around. And I much preferred doing the journalism, I think, having having done that role, as much as I love Red Bull and the people there were, were fabulous. But you're looking at what makes an interesting story. How do I, how do I shape this story? It taught me a lot about what makes things work online, you know, how what are the headlines that people are reading and you start to become really analytical as an editor because everything from that, you know, first headline to your subheading, so the, the even the first paragraph is so important. And then also how do you how do you spread content? And I think that's really where I started to learn about social media was at Red Bull. Um because these guys are experts at what they do and you know you're surrounded by people who really know their stuff.
0: And of course they're not just a drinks brand. Their revenue a lot of it comes from the drinks brand itself, but they are creating new independent content that is completely journalistic
1: well absolutely because you've got red bull and then you've got red bull media house so the media house you know pumps out all those incredible videos that you see it's the they've got the red bulletin which is a magazine and then you've got com which is what i was working on um and again all kind of interesting very shareable content so when you're analyzing day after day after day what makes content shareable um some of it does get absorbed which is which is nice and the struggle that I found was that so much of what we share now, and maybe this is a an indication of our society, but it is very short, it's very clicky, it's not got a huge amount of depth to it. So those longer form stories um, are suddenly being sort of replaced by, for want of a better word, clickbait in a sense. And it's it's finding that balance. And I think when we talk about creating communities online, I think the the people who really are successful in that create really authentic communities and conversations because that's sort of what's missing from a lot of what we've seen uh, previously.
0: Whilst you were there, you were doing the editing job, but you were learning all this stuff around how to share stuff and learning the ropes of social media. What was the moment where you chose to leave redbull.com? What were you thinking about doing next? What was the kind of conversation you were having with yourself and did you create a vision of where you wanted to go?
1: So I was really lucky. And during my time at Red Bull, I was a freelancer. So I wasn't on like a full-time contract or anything like that. And Reza Pakravan reached out and said, do you want to go to the Amazon for three months looking at deforestation? I said, yes, that would be amazing. I ran it past Red Bull and they said, yeah, do you know what? You're the adventure editor. We get that this is something that you want to do. So they were the most understanding company. So they let me go off for three months.
0: So you took a sabbatical. You weren't there as the Red Bull Adventure Editor or did you create stuff for them as well?
1: No. So I, I basically took three months off and then came back um, to the job that I've been doing before, which was really uh, fortunate. But again, because I, I was a freelancer, I wasn't employed there. Uh, it made it slightly easier but then I found again, you know, the Essequibo trip came up and I was like, oh, I really want to just paddle down the river for another three months. And I, I slowly began to realise that as much as I love the people and the team and I really did enjoy working there, I was getting more opportunities to do things outside of that. Um, and actually sort of having to commit to a company in a sense was was becoming harder. So it, it felt like the right time to leave. And I, I, I left with a plan to create a lifestyle that would work with a family going forward, if I'm really honest, Ash. Because I've always known that I've wanted children, but I've also wanted to work. So it's like, how can I work from home, essentially, in something that I really enjoy doing? I think that's probably the only plan I've ever really had, how to make that happen.
0: And I mean, kayaking down rivers is not a way to continually run a family
1: <laughs> No. Life
0: how did the esquibo come about and how was that a part of this vision to eventually create a more family sustainable life
1: Well, so again, I think a lot of opportunities, you just have to say yes to in life if they come across your path. And this was one of them. So Laura rang me up one day when I was at Red Bull and she said, uh, Pip, I know you've spent some time in the Amazon. How do you feel about kayaking down a river that's never been kayaked? And I think in my head, Ash, I probably heard float down a river with pina coladas because had I had known that there were like rapids and waterfalls and caiman and snakes and jaguar and all that good stuff. Um... And also just what was to come on that river. I'm not entirely sure I would have said yes. But, you know, when you're sat in an office in central London and you're being offered the chance to kayak down a river in Guyana, um, it was something that I definitely said yes to. Uh, How did
0: that happen? I mean, I'm sure most people listening will think, how do you get called up and asked to go and kayak down a river? Did you have to do anything for this or was it all expenses paid? What was the sort of return for them on that?
1: Yeah, so this was very much Laura's project. She'd she'd kind of had it percolating for a good number of, um, about a year and a half, I think, and We'd met at an event called Campfire, which is uh, an adventure industry event um, hosted by Ed Stafford and uh, Ranulph Fines, And I I met her kid and we'd got on really well. So I think she'd met me from that and thought, you know what, I could probably do an adventure with Pip. Because as you know, Ash, if you do a long adventure with anyone, spending months on end with someone, you have to have like an element of being able to get on with them. So I think we'd sort of connected initially. She was looking for teammates. She didn't want to do it on her own. And I sort of happened to be in the right place at the right time. And it goes back to, you know, get out and meet people because having taken our relationship from an online one to an offline one actually worked. And you never know um, who you're going to connect with. So I think in in terms of that, I was really lucky. And Laura um, did an amazing job finding a lot of the sponsorship and everything like that. So it was paid for completely um, by sponsors who, who kindly kind of helped the trip. And, and that was it, basically.
0: How did you change during that trip and how did that shape your vision of things like social media now um, and the direction that you wanted to go next?
1: Hmm. So th- this trip was life changing in so many ways. It was definitely there were times on that journey where I thought I'm not going to make this out alive. Uh, to be honest, Ash. I nearly sat on a deadly snake at one point. Um, and that makes you really reconsider life and what you're doing. And especially your own ego, um, because it was like, what insecurities have led me to this point in life where I'm trying to prove something and what am I trying to prove and to who? So that was really interesting. But it also showed me the dark side of social media, Um, because I think anyone who's interested in people, especially journalists, is all about providing a platform to enable people to tell their stories Yet what I realised I was doing on this Essequibo journey was taking selfie after selfie after selfie. And I remember halfway down the river, I look back at my social media and it was just pictures of me. And I was like, this is so wrong. Um, you know, I'm in this most incredible place. We're guided by the YY community. There are such rich stories about the environment and the people that we're with that I am failing to tell properly on social media. And even though every night at the end of each day, I'd I'd ask the entire team, you know, what were the highlights of your day? What have you learned? I was documenting it all really quite a lot. But online and that that kind of portal to the outside world, in a sense, it was very one dimensional, very narcissistic. And I I looked at my social media and I thought, this is not who I want to be. It is who I was at that moment. Um, But it wasn't the person I wanted to be. And I think... For a good number of weeks, I was in this real existential crisis, for want of a better word. Because you you spend eight hours a day sat on your ass in a kayak on your own. There's a lot of time to think. And I think it just made me realise, okay, if you put up a selfie, you'll get more likes. But social media has to do more than that. It has to be a conversation. And how do you share it? Can you share it? So it really changed the way I approach social media. And now I've got this little mantra, which is post for the soul, not the self.
0: What is your relationship like with social media now? How do you use it? Is it a really important part of your life? And how do you stop yourself going down that same dark path with it? Because it's a significant part of your revenue.
1: Mm. And I think it's, it's a really fine balance to have. So essentially, I only work with brands that I genuinely use and recommend. So that's one thing. So don't get tempted by the cash because I think ultimately this whole influencer social media space is going to be quite temporary. And if it's not, if you want longevity in it, you need to be authentic. So literally doing deals with brands that you, you feel like you relate to in some way. I think there's a lot of effort that goes on behind the scenes in terms of social media. I spend a lot of time replying to direct messages. I reply to people's comments. Um, and that can take up to an hour or two a day. Um, which Do you block
0: that time out?
1: Sometimes. Sometimes it's just a case of if you've got a spare, you know, half an hour here and there to to do that. Um, But what I really love about social media that I didn't quite get with traditional journalism is it is a conversation. And you can put something up on Instagram stories and ask a question, you know, um, quite recently. Talk to me about what you're doing to help the environment, for example, and you get some great ideas, and it's a two way dialogue. And I think that is the beauty of social media is it is a conversation, it is a dialogue. Um, and I think if you are just putting out content one way and and not kind of responding to your audience um, of whom you can learn like so much from, you're you're definitely onto a losing battle there. And I think that's the other thing I, I massively want to open up my platform to people, voices, and ideas that need to be amplified and probably aren't being heard at the moment so I've started doing Instagram takeovers for example of people whose ideas or who, who I admire personally um, to try and spread their message and, and what what they're up to.
0: How have you grown your followership without sacrificing that level of community because one of the things that's often used as the metric for Success on social media is number of followers, a number of likes.
1: Absolutely. So I think a lot of what I was doing in the early days was like, oh, likes equals good, which is rubbish. Um, and actually, to be perfectly transparent, Ash, like when I started out in social media, you can get these tools which do follow unfollow like robots, essentially, really frowned on in the industry at the moment. And I, I made the mistake of using one. And you pay quite a lot of money for these things to like follow people in your industry that are similar to you who might have sort of same interests. And then later on it will unfollow people who haven't followed you back. And I got caught in this trap in the really early days and then I stopped using it. And I just watched my followers like fall and fall and fall and fall. So it was all artificial. It was a waste of time. It was a waste of money and and hugely misguided. Whereas what I realised works better is to legitimately build up your followers nice and slowly because that's how authentic growth happens um, by communicating and having that two-way conversation so I'd say to anyone thinking of growing their social media don't use any robots talk to the people that are engaging with you at the moment because they are going to be your biggest advocates and champion them as well find out what they're up to find out a little bit about them because social by its very definition is two-way
0: Thanks, Pip. Very honest of you to share that. Thank you very much. Right, Pip, rapid fire questions. You ready?
1: Yeah, no, probably not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What is the place that you love to return to?
1: Uh, I loved a place called the Asi Plateau in Kazakhstan. Charlie and I camped there. It was just beautiful. We didn't see a soul for days and just the most incredible stars. We took our tent on our bikes and just camped out for a few days with magic.
0: That sounds pretty epic, actually. Camping outside is always uh, a memorable experience, particularly someone like that with those kinds of stars. If you had to give a TED talk about something that you are not known for, what would it be and why?
1: Do you know what, Ash? I'm going to actually cheat on this question because I did do a TEDx talk on leishmaniasis, which is a neglected tropical disease I got. Um, And I would keep talking about neglected tropical diseases because it's such an important issue and one that I really feel strongly about because... Yeah, the parasite that I got in Guyana, um, which could have eaten off my nose and my soft palate or killed me if I got the most severe form, impacts one billion people around the world. One billion? Yeah, I had no idea. Like one, one billion people in 98 countries are at risk from leishmaniasis. It's the second biggest parasitic killer after malaria. Most people have never heard of it. So my next actual... Big project is probably trying to do a PhD looking at how you communicate neglected tropical diseases.
0: Wow, that is awesome. Thanks. Also, because you then be Dr. Pip. <laughs> um, what is a tool or technique that has helped you along your journey when things were not going well?
1: Mantra. I'm a massive fan of mantra. And I remember when I was coming down the Essequibo and we hit the Atlantic Ocean. So we're coming into Georgetown, you got a strong headwind, the, the waves are picked up. Um, And I was looking at this house on the horizon and I was, I swear, like in line with it for about 30 minutes and I didn't seem to be moving anywhere. Um, And I just had this little mantra in my head, which is you can do this, you are doing this, you can do this, you are doing this. And I was just trying to paddle to that rhythm um, and it really did help.
0: Do you have any recommendations of books, films, podcasts or other resources that people can dig into to get more of an idea on the subject that we've been talking about today whether that's your getting started whether that's storytelling or whether that's social media or neglected tropical diseases
1: sweet well i'd say um explorers connect is a really good place to go if you're looking for expedition teammates um it's where i met reza for example um a post on there um I'd probably say some tools that I've used for my own social media that might be quite useful if people are looking to uh, schedule stuff is called Preview App. And that will show you what your social media kind of grid will look like in advance so you can plan out your week's content. There's a very good uh, free app as well called InShot, which I use for video editing and you can add text and things like that. And that makes quite fun Instagram stories as well. And then another tool that I use is called Cut Story And they provide interesting templates so your stories can be a little bit more uh, dynamic, I guess, from the usual. So they're three things I really use a lot of.
0: Thanks for those, Pip. And you are quite the expert at Instagram. So definitely good recommendations to follow. What would you do if you were not doing what you do now?
1: Ash I've been obsessed with this show called One Born Every Minute since I've been pregnant which essentially shows people on their journey to motherhood and the midwives have been amazing and I I think looking into midwifery it must just be the coolest profession because you're genuinely helping people at a very scary time in life because you're like oh my gosh I've got to push this little child out and they've been so reassuring and so kind so I think yeah midwifery might kind of be an option.
0: Midwifery is also a very funny sounding word. It is. Pip, are there any projects that you've got coming up? Anything that you want to tell us about other than the sprout?
1: Yeah well I'm working on a little bun in the oven which we're calling Sprout so yes that's that's coming out in February 2020 all being well.
0: W- will there be a big launch event for this as there is of every other expedition?
1: And <laughs> I, I think there's going to be a bit, very big launch event Ash probably accompanied by a lot of yelling and screaming um, <laughs> God help us all. Um, yeah so I'm going to be a mum in February which is possibly my next big adventure and I'd love to do adventures as a family and show that that is possible because something that a lot of people have said to me when I got pregnant was oh god was that the end of your adventure traveling career and I really hope the answer is no and I'm going to try and do everything I can to show that it is possible but you know who knows time will tell so I might go through another reiteration of life but fingers crossed it involves travel um, other than that I'm still working on my essequibo book and looking at love and love across cultures and essentially what connects us because I think the reason I love travel so much is it connects us to ourselves, to other people and to the natural world around us. And if I can encourage my child and other people to kind of think in those terms, I think the world needs to be a little bit kinder. Fingers crossed.
0: And... Where is the best place for people to follow you for those bits and pieces?
1: Well, I've got a very inconsistent uh, social media. So, uh, you know, of all the things I've learned, I should have everything similar across the board. But I'm at Pip Stewart on Instagram and at Stewart underscore Pip on Twitter. <laughs> I know it's not very cohesive, is it?
0: No, just to just to make things a little more complex. I know. But thanks. And so that's the best way for people to get in touch with you. Yeah. Pip, thank you so much for sharing your stories with me. Luckily, I get to talk to you every time we do a podcast and the times in between when we're planning them. And I am very grateful to have you as a friend, Pip. I always enjoy hanging out with you. I always enjoy your positivity. I always enjoy your approach to things. You have such insight and, like I said, very good research and analytical mind to go with a really good heart and a real empathy for others so i really appreciate you as a friend
1: thanks Sash. likewise
0: listeners out there if you've got any questions for pip or i any other ideas for guests for the podcast or if you want to ask us anything that we can then answer in future you can get in touch with pip or you can get in touch with me on twitter and instagram thank you very much for listening to the first mile and we'll speak to you again soon thanks guys thanks for listening to that episode of the first mile Pip and I have really enjoyed making this show and we would love it if more people could hear it. So if you've enjoyed that episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find the first mile? Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. The review doesn't have to be long, even a thumbs up will do. Then send the link to this episode to a friend who might be interested or take a screenshot of this episode and share it on social media. Make sure you tag us on at Ash Barwaj and at Pip Stewart, and we'll be sure to share it too.
1: Then go put your feet up and have a nice cup of tea. So thanks guys for listening, and we'll see you next time on The First Mile.
0: This episode of The First Mile was supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. Each episode of Further Faster is packed with inspiration and insight about extreme exploration and adventure, And we listen to it whenever we want to blow our minds about what's possible. Just search for Further Faster on your podcast app to find it.